electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, left behind in the rally. A rough year for Apple investors taking a harsh new turn. Let's make a deal. Boeing out with a big update on a potential merger. Keep on electric trucking. From Kim K to Jay-Z, Cybertruck turning into the celebrity status symbol. 1,000 or bust. Eli Lilly scoring its boldest Wall Street call yet. Fixing San Francisco. How a candidate from the world of tech wants to literally... Clean up the city by the bay. Stay safe, stay home. California bracing for a winter wallop that may be unlike any other. Snow totals, you've got to hear, and you will. With all that and more over the hour, so belly up or buckle up, a Friday last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and more coming up across the hour. But first up on Last Call, happy Friday to all of you investors out there because you've been making money again. New records on the street of dreams. The S&P 500 powering above 5,100 for the first time ever. The Nasdaq surging to an all-time high, finally surpassing that 2021 record that's been just so pesky for so long. So what exactly has been leading the tech bull run? Okay, this is not exactly a hard question. It has been NVIDIA, apparently everybody's favorite stock, closing above a $2 trillion valuation. Keep this in mind. Four years ago, NVIDIA was worth just $170 billion. A lot of money, but not $2 trillion. And this is even more mind-blowing. We're not doing an RBI tonight, but if we did, this would be it. Just 10 years ago, NVIDIA was worth $12 billion. That means that just 120 or so short months ago, whatever it is, NVIDIA was about the same size as J.M. Smucker or Campbell's Soup are now. And it's had a 17,800% gain over that time. No doubt NVIDIA has minted new, many new millionaires. Now, overall, the Nasdaq's remarkable run began in the the beginning of December, really. That is when the Fed signaled that it would begin likely cutting rates this year. But now some are questioning if we will get any rate cuts at all. Here is Apollo Investments chief economist Torsten Slock earlier today. We expect now that the Fed will probably stay on hold until the end of this year because the tailwind to growth over the next several quarters continues to be so strong. Now, remember, the Federal Reserve began its rate hike, one of the most aggressive and fast rate hike cycles ever nearly two years ago. Since then, the S&P 500 has gone up about 20 percent. So do we just kind of shrug off the Fed and can the markets continue to hit new highs even if we don't get rate cuts? What if Torsten Slock and others like him are correct? Let's talk about it with our friend Tom Lee. He is Fundstrat managing partner and head of research. Uh, Tom. Uh, what do you think? Does the, I'm going to ask a question that, you know, 
Does the Fed matter? Uh, the Fed definitely matters. Um, if the Fed is hawkish and is concerned about inflation reaccelerating and communicates that and interest rates rise, stocks would go down. So Fed definitely matters. If we don't get a Fed cut this year, will that change your views and or the trajectory of yield stock market, Tom? Yes, I think if there's no cuts this year, the stock market has to reassess what it's thinking in terms of uh, the trajectory of inflation, the probability of a soft landing, and of course, all these things would weigh on what would happen to multiple. So yes, it would absolutely make a difference. Okay, so let's say we had one month of inflation, the PCE a little bit wacky. One of Torsten Slock and Apollo's arguments is that there are signs to him and his team that inflation may be either stickier or maybe even reinflating in some areas and not just owner's equivalent rent. What is your take on inflation right now, Tom? Uh, I think the overarching reality is inflation is falling. Uh, you can look at it by the percentage components that are in deflation from their peak, or you can look at it, as you said, core services, X housing and auto insurance. Those are all basically at the Fed's target. There is something that does happen early in the year, which is that there's that seasonality in January that doesn't get completely fixed. That's why January was a sort of positive surprise. And that's because a lot of companies raise prices on January, in the month of January, oh. and it doesn't get captured. Oh, so maybe it's kind of a, ca- a calendar. Corporate, are you saying, Tom, that corporate greed is really the underlying cause of inflation? Uh, yes. I mean, if you think about, like, you know, companies raise prices either at the time of a renewal, uh, but if it's a calendar year, which is a lot more convenient, especially because that's a calendar year end for a business, they'll actually raise prices in the month of January. And if they don't, raise it on the exact same date every year, well, the seasonal adjustment will catch it on the wrong way. Um, that's why I think January and February tend to have that high, what they call residual seasonality. You know, Tom, people know you as the guy that got it right in 2023 when so many others, there was a couple of you out there, but that was pretty much it. You got it right. They kind of know you as the stock guy. But we think of you, Tom, not only as, a, as, our, as our good friend and a lovable human being, but as the original Bitcoin evangelist. I know last week you talked about 100,000 plus on Bitcoin, but I think people forget that like a decade ago, when like six drug dealers and a couple other people were the only ones using Bitcoin, you were out there saying that Bitcoin was, I think at a couple thousand or a couple hundred bucks back then, Tom, you were bullish a decade ago on Bitcoin. What did you see in this esoteric, digital currency that others did not. How's that for a hardball? Uh, yeah. Uh, Friday, well, Brian, man. Let's be nice. Yeah. Um, well, I think Bitcoin solves a lot of problems in the monetary system uh, because it is a trustless blockchain and yet has never had a fraudulent entry. That's a prodigious accomplishment, especially given uh, in that same, let's say, 14-year life, uh, the a traditional bank has 6% of all its transactions suspicious. And Bitcoin, in terms of its network value, has been pretty easy to model because it's based on how many wallets actually use it. That was really our early Bitcoin model was uh, using a what you call Metcalf's law, the idea that as you grow the number of users, the network utility grows. 
that still explains over 90% of the move of Bitcoin. And today, very few people, uh, well, it's now in the millions, actually have a Bitcoin wallet. That number could grow into the hundreds of millions or even billions. And so that's why there's still upside from here. Wow. Yeah, listen, when, when I read the book about Ross Albrecht, who did the Silk Road, fantastic book. Can't remember the author's name, top of my head, but worth a read. I bought one Bitcoin to see how it was done. I sold it like a week later, and now I just want to cry myself to sleep. Tom, <laughs> again. Tom Lee, a fun strat. Great calls and markets. Great, even better call in Bitcoin. Tom, thank you. Have a great weekend. You too, Brian. All right, be well. All right, let's take a look at our studs and duds of the week. The big winner of the week, Constellation Energy, up 27%. Investors shrugging off an earnings miss because of good guidance and a dividend boost. NetApp did well. And Norwegian Cruise Lines also setting sail. First profitable year since 2019. That stock has soared. By the way, how much have these cruise lines gone up since we interviewed the CEO of Royal Caribbean the first week of January? If you listen to him, you made a lot of money. Now, the big, also, if you listen to us, you might have prevented a lot of losses. The big loss of the week, Excel Energy, down 16% over fears. It could be held liable for the wildfire raging in Texas. That is exactly what we warned you about in our recent documentary about utilities and wildfire risk, also declining Insulet and United Health. All right, we are just live and getting going on a Friday. And up next, a major report on what Boeing may do to help make quality job one again. Plus, forget Rolls Royce or Bentley or McLaren's. Why many celebs are now rocking the Cybertruck? Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, let's get down to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you and Wall should be talking about, I guess, on Saturday morning. Anyway, first up, more bad news for New York Community Bank and its investors. Fitch cutting NYCB's debt rating. This comes after a major executive shakeup and a warning about internal control since that stock tumbling. By the way, shares of New York Community Bank are now just $3.58. This is one of the biggest regional banks in America, folks. Also happening, some major changes to the S&P 500. Super microcomputers and Decker's Outdoors will be joining the index. Both obviously are up. But here's the thing. Super microcomputers is going from like single A to the majors. They were in the small cap index. They just completely bypassed Jan Brady. Forget about mid caps. They're going right in to the S&P 500. But as two companies come in, Two companies also must go out. Otherwise, it would be the S&P 502. 
The ones getting kicked out, appliance maker Whirlpool and Zion's Bancorp. Not surprising there, maybe given the regional bank madness. Shares of both of those companies are lower after hours because they're out of the major index. Also, some new details emerging about Reddit's upcoming IPO. Social media company is targeting a valuation of up to $6.5 billion and an IPO of $31 to $34 a share. May seem like a lot of coin, but that $6.5 billion is actually 35% lower than Reddit's $10 billion valuation in a 2021 funding round. That valuation, though, of course, could go up, but a far cry from where it once was. Still, also, Boeing confirming it isn't talks to buy or buy back Spirit Aerosystems. Now, Spirit Aerosystems is the Kansas-based company that makes the fuselages on the 737 MAX airplanes. That company came after, under scrutiny after a door plug blew off on that Alaska Airlines flight earlier this year. Boeing had previously owned Spirit, but then spun the company off about 20 years ago. Boeing shares not moving a whole lot. Spirit stock, as you might imagine, is up considerably. If you're going to get bought, that tends to be what happened. Some, though, are skeptical about a potential deal, though. RBC, out with a note today, writing, quote, Will acquiring Spirit solve the quality issues for Boeing? We anticipate this question as the most prevailing and most asked question from investors. In short, our answer is no, at least not in the near term, according to RBC Capital Markets. So what could any deal, if it happens, and it may not, mean for Boeing? Joining us now is Yale School of Management Senior Associate Dean and CNBC contributor Jeff Sonnenfeld. Jeff, uh, I think not only do you think they should buy them back, but my guess is if you go back 20 years ago, the whole spinoff was a mistake. You're exactly right. The RBC is not 100% wrong. I think they should be a little less cynical. Is There's a lot of opportunity here, uh, but it doesn't solve every problem. RBC is right on that. But uh, and F- you're familiar, of course, and you've reported on the FAA report that came out just last week that was really condemning, basically saying that this is plain crazy, so to speak, that they still seem to have uh, their their heads in the, in the clouds and their planes on the ground, and the FAA is going to make that happen. They have 90 days to fix problems. The three categories of problems, Brian, that the FAA identified are the exact three that Boeing is addressing and that we raised with you back in April and in Fortune magazine a, a year ago, April, and we raised it in two others of your shows. Uh, is that it has to do with supply chain, it has to do with the governance systems and the culture, mm-hmm. and third, it has to do with production. This gets one of those three. What it gets to, it gets to the supply chain problem. Uh, that's fundamental. doesn't fix all the others, but they're addressing the governance issues, frankly, but putting a lot of great women in senior roles. But 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 here, this I would, uh, Jeff, Joe, I would argue, I, I agree with everything you're saying, and, and you're, you're using Yale Management School speak because you are a professor. I would say it's about something a lot simpler. Right. Control. They need control. They don't want to deal with them as a partner or a customer or whatever. They want control to control every part of what you said. Supply chain. You've got it on supply chain. That's the issue. If you were at the Yale School of Management today, we would have taken your language because, believe it or not, this is a big leap. But we had the president of Salesforce and the top brass of Google and and uh, uh, and and others here today talking about why they don't want to out, outsource Adobe, uh, why they don't want to use open sourcing because they want control over the risks of AI. Well, here's the same thing: is that 60% of the of 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 the production of Spirit 
it goes to Boeing. Boeing, they rely on Boeing. A hundred percent of the maxes are made, and they've had all these problems with the fuselage, the door plugs, and other things. And we've seen with whistleblowers that were reported in the Seattle Times a lot of problems, and with like four hundred problems have come out in that report. Uh, by whistleblowers saying that this is problems that came from Spirit. They have Pat Shanahan, who's in there now as the new CEO, fixing a lot of these problems at Spirit. But but they also have great data that Boeing needs uh, on on their systems and and to work together. They also have access to the skill set. The skill set of Boeing is very much degraded. They they had um, maybe half the workforce that Boeing had six years plus of experience yeah. in, in the mechanics. Uh, before COVID, now it's it's, it's less just, than twenty five percent. It's just so after they, it's just after midnight in Toulouse, France. I mean, what do you think Airbus is sitting back thinking about all this? Think they're just toasting themselves and saying this is unbelievably good publicity for old Airbus. It, it is good. Airbus uh, relies on very little uh, uh, from outside sources. They make most of their own fuselages. It's, uh, it's, it was a very misguided move. Uh, I, I knew the CEO, Harry Stonecipher, is a, a, a storied career there. Crusty old guy that raised a little bit of money. He came as a turnaround guy at Boeing. This was a misguided move. Uh, they could buy it for $3 billion. It's not even 2% of, of the market value of Boeing. They easily could buy this. We've been arguing they should do this for at least a year. And a lot of we got that from a lot of Boeing insiders, frankly, who told us that this should have done been done. So it, it makes uh, it makes a, a good deal of sense to do yeah. it now. Well, we, we might see the head. You know how it works. You might see some headlines like Sunday night and you might find yourself on Squawk Box Monday morning. Jeff, you never know. Jeff Sonnenfeld. Thank you. Uh, thank you. All right. Still ahead. Forget the black card, Rolexes, Gucci loafers, whatever. The cyber truck may now be celebrity's favorite status symbol. Could it help, though? Maybe end Tesla's recent funk. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back. When it comes to celebrity status symbols, we all know about things like the Amex black card, the Hermes Birkin bag, wearing sweatpants, unironically. It means you're rich. But now there could be a new member of that club, the Tesla Cybertruck. Look at this. Kim Kardashian touting her brand new Cybertruck on Instagram, recently calling herself, quote, the cool carpool mom. Pharrell Williams, been seen driving around Miami and his Jay-Z and Beyonce reportedly have one. So too do Justin and Haley Bieber, Lady Gaga as well. Of course, this is not the first time an A-lister has been spotted with a Tesla. Remember all the way back in May of 2008, when then-governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was seen with the Tesla Roadster. How about that for a throwback? Hey, I drove a Roadster in 2009, but I don't make the cut. So is this just strategic marketing from Tesla, or could the Celebrity Cybertruck Club actually drive sales? Let's bring in our fun Friday night panel to talk about it. Wall Street Journal columnist, CBC contributor Tim Higgins, and Wharton marketing professor and CBC contributor Americus Reed. Guys, let's have a little bit of, let's have a little bit of fun with this, America's, I mean, I got to imagine, it doesn't matter how many, you could buy a billion TV ads, it's not going to do anything compared to Kim Kardashian's social media feed at a Starbucks. 
Yeah, I love that point, Brian. I think it's 100% correct. And from a promotion perspective, you're really talking about earned media and the idea that, hey, you know, it makes a lot of sense if I take this $60,000 truck and just give it to Kim and let her tool around in it and make pictures and, and photograph herself on Instagram, go to Starbucks, et cetera. And then her 364 million followers are going to pay attention to that. And then that story is going to go viral. And then people will be talking about it. It'll be covered on fantastic news programs such as yourself. And everything becomes elevated and amplified. And so it's a good return on investment from the perspective of promotion and getting awareness and top of the funnel kinds of ideas. Yeah, I mean, Tim, it's to, to America's point, the Cybertruck is, I mean, listen, by middle class standards, it's very expensive. I get it, $76,000. The Beast is 96. The cheaper version is out there. The rear-wheel drive as well coming later this year. 76, nothing to sneeze at. But compared to a $400,000 Rolls-Royce Cullinan or Maybach, this is kind of a bargain status car, isn't it? Yeah, and it looks different. And I, I kind of call it apocalypse chic. Uh, you know, they're trying something different here. And it, one of the things that investors are hoping, and it looks like maybe they're seeing this when you see these celebrities driving it, is that it will become a halo vehicle for the brand. That's how Tesla started out. These super expensive vehicles uh, that, that excelled in performance, that attracted celebrities. But in the last year or so, we've seen kind of a push down market as Elon chases scale and volume. And, uh, you know, they're cheaper vehicles. Well, the Cybertruck has got that pizzazz, that aspirational aspect to it that hopefully uh, Tesla's betting will bring bring people into the stores uh, to look at it, to kick the tires. And, hey, why they're there, they might not buy it, but maybe they'll look at the Model 3 or the Model Y and say, hey, I want to get into that and I'll buy that, which is really what Tesla needs uh, as it faces this kind of challenge as the year ahead. They need volume. Because, Americas, you're not, you're not trying to convince people to change coffee brands or buy Dave's bread over some other bread. I mean, the, you know, swapping sort of one consumer product, this is a very unique looking. I mean, nothing is ever – this is it – is it is the first of its kind. It's different in every way. As a marketing professor, how do you have to sell something kind of like the iPhone or the iPod or something that has never been seen before? Well, I think it's a great question, Brian. I think the answer to that is really within the brand of Elon Musk, because we're not really selling cars here. We're selling the visionary, futuristic attitude and rebellious, in-your-face, F.U. Disney kind of attitude that goes along <laughs> with this guy. And people want a piece of that. You know, People love him or hate him, but you can't say he doesn't attract attention. So from that perspective, you're really buying a piece of this, this vision that Elon has. And so tooling around in these Teslas and in these trucks, these so-called software platforms on wheels yeah. is basically what you're trying to do to get a little bit of psychological distance closer to this inspirational and aspirational figure, as Tim was saying. It's a computer that moves things. I mean, that, that's, the, that's what really Teslas are at their core, I think, Tim. Uh, to America's point, uh, th this is a, a unique thing, but at the same time, Elon Musk is a polarizing guy. He's kind of the, the he's, he's actually the human version of the Cybertruck in a sense that it's a polarizing figure. Some people love it. Some people don't like it. Elon Musk is that personified. Are there people who dislike Elon who will still buy the Cybertruck, you think? Total wild speculation on your part. That's the big question. That's the big question for the past year. I have friends who've sold Teslas. Because Absolutely. when Elon Musk, you know, went, you know, bought Twitter and they didn't like the stuff he was saying, they're like, I'm dumping my Tesla. 
you know, it's interesting. One of the big popular uh, bumper stickers on Etsy these days is, you know, that they bought the Tesla before Elon went crazy, right? And, and they're, they're selling thousands of these. But the, when you look at the numbers, uh, there's still a lot of uh, interest and success for the Tesla brand in places like California, uh, a very uh, democratic, a very blue kind of state where you think you might see some kind of pushback. Yet we haven't really seen that yet. So one of the kind of the, the magical or impressive things about this brand is just how much people uh, like Tesla. I think I've heard you say it many times. Uh, people mm -hmm. uh, don't really necessarily want an electric vehicle. They want a Tesla. And that is a kind of a, a testament to the, the strength of the brand. Uh, that we've seen this. Are there really bumper stickers, people apologizing and, and basically saying to the world, I bought this car before Musk bought Twitter? Is that a thing, Tim? Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry I bought this car before Musk bought Twitter and free speech. Amer anyway, crazy. America's Reed, Tim Higgins, great conversation. And we got to show some celebrity footage. So it's like a win-win. Guys, thank you. Have a great weekend. All right, coming up, Apple's new bruise, the shocking stat around Apple stock that you're going to want to hear. Plus, Sharper New Pencils, our exclusive list of insider buys is next, and it was a busy, busy week inside the C-suite with some new names just for you. All right, welcome back. It is one of our favorite times of the week. It's our exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the five companies with the most executives buying the stock with their own money. The data comes from our friends at Verity Data. And as always, we count you down five to one. Here you go. Stock number five, a $473,000 buy at Highwoods Properties. That is the largest ever buy at that company. Highwoods, a North Carolina-based REIT that owns a lot of big office properties, mostly in the southeast. So a big insider buy at a commercial real estate company, kind of interesting. Fourth most insider buy, the CEO of car tech company Open Lane, buying $509,000 worth of the stock. First buy for the CEO in nearly two years. Stock three, a company called AMN Healthcare. It's a Dallas-based nursing and staffing company. The CEO buying $992,000 worth of the stock. First insider buy for her since joining AMN in November of 2022. Now to the top two of the week. Second most insider buy this week, another healthcare-related company, Option Care Health. They do at-home infusion care. The chairman making a just over $1 million buy. But the company with the most insider buys this week is Allegion. The CEO buying $1.3 million worth of that company. It's his first buy since July of 2022. And what's even more interesting is that he's buying into strength. Legion stock is up 17% in just three months. Normally, we see a lot of buying into weakness, not as much into strength. So maybe a Legion, one to watch. There you go. The names, Highwood Properties, Open Lane, AMN, Option Care Health, and a Legion. Reminder, we do this almost every Friday, not in the quiet periods around earnings. You can also catch it on CNBC Pro over the weekend. Sign up today. All right, as we mentioned earlier, it was an historic day for the NASDAQ. But one of the biggest companies in the world, formerly the biggest company in the world, has kind of sat out the remarkable run. Apple has had a fairly rotten year so far. Apple stock is actually down 7%, and the NASDAQ is up 8%. To add a little bit of insult to investor injury, today Goldman Sachs removed Apple from its conviction buy list. To be clear, Goldman still has a buy rating on the stock, but they replaced Apple on one of their most important stock recommendation lists. 
And this could be our RBI tonight again if we were doing one. On December 21st, 2021, Apple stock was at $179. Today, it's at $179. So unless you traded Apple in short-term moves or bursts, Apple's been flat money for over two years. But maybe that's exactly when you want to buy. Let's talk about Apple with Needham and Company Managing Director and Senior Internet and Media Analyst, Laura Martin. Hi, Laura. Love these Friday segments. Uh, what's wrong with Apple? So there's three things going on, Brian. The first is China's really weak because of geopolitical concerns. The government of China has outlawed Apple devices in its government buildings. So competitors are now squeezing out Apple in China, and it's 20% of total revenues for Apple. So that's a problem that's leaning on earnings. Um, secondly, the, you know, all capital right now is being reallocated towards generative AI, and some of those won't work out. But I think there's a lot of excitement in the marketplace about generative AI upside. And the way capital moves in liquidity, people want to fund things that are going to get a higher return on capital. This is a hardware business. They haven't said a word about generative AI. You saw that they shut down their auto group and moved yep. the 2000 engineers to Gen AI, but they're late, Brian. The China stuff is fascinating, and I, I want people to fully understand what's going on. If you don't know or haven't been to China, I've been to China. I don't know if you have. They, social credit is really important in the nation of China. It's sort of tracked. And, I, and when, when China announced the Huawei phone, I thought to myself, if, if you're somebody of means in China and you're seen with an iPhone over effectively the government's own phone, that's a negative in society in China right now. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I think they did because Apple iPhones are so expensive that they are usually allocated to the super rich. Even in this country, I think 35% of people have iPhones. But there it was sort of a badge of wealth to have an iPhone. But because we're trying to outlaw TikTok here, the government there is saying, okay, no Apple devices in our government buildings because we think America's stealing data. So I, I think it's more political pawn than it is. You know, maybe it's a social pawn, too. But if the government outlaws the phone at your work, that's a problem. That hurts your network effects if you're Apple. It is. And, and so you talked about generative AI. The car is apparently dead. They're going to refocus a lot of the, the, the human and intellectual capital and, and money, capital, capital on generative AI. Where does Apple stand in the AI thing? They're kind of they're not a company we, we really talk about much. What, what would they do with AI? So I think that's the best question you've just asked, Brian, which Thank is you. they can put generative AI into their apps, into their ecosystem, make it faster, make the battery look longer. But the problem at the end of the day is that Apple does something. It makes a product called an iPhone or a tablet or earphones or a home system. And so all of the benefits of Gen AI to them sit within their, I'm going to call it tiny, global smartphone ecosystem. That is not what people are funding when they're funding Gen AI investors. They're funding the fact that Google large language models may become the backbone for all of American business globally. Mm -hmm. Well, American business as it goes global, same with Amazon, same with ChatGPT4 and Microsoft. Like we're talking about a disruptive layer of technology with lower costs and faster times to market because you can write the first draft of your new product with generative AI code that's going to sort of disrupt all of American business, which is $3 trillion a year. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the upside for generative AI outside of Apple. Fascinating conversation. I look forward to doing a little more on Apple and AI and everything else. I always look forward to our Friday segments, Laura, as well. Thank you.
Bye bye. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thank you. Coming up, could one of America's most troubled cities get a big change at the top? How are venture capitalists wants to fix San Francisco? Plus, speaking of California, you can check out, but you can't leave. The snowstorm rocking California that you've got to hear about. All right, welcome back. Efforts to revitalize one of America's great cities, San Francisco, are coming in full force from Silicon Valley tech leaders. But they're not looking to do it with just money. Some are looking at politics and maybe a big change at City Hall. Kate Rooney joining us now with more. Kate. Hey, Brian. So the tech community here in San Francisco is mobilizing to try to fix the city that some have said is in a doom loop. The mayoral and city council elections are a key focus. Many have blamed the city's laundry list of issues like crime and homelessness on progressive politics. Tech leaders here are backing more moderate candidates and the recall of a controversial district attorney and school board officials was a tipping point for some. Those two being successful were a great catalyst. And I I think I... I could feel a turning in like, let's just say vibe shift, which is like, okay, we've got this. Like we can, um, we can bring change to the city if we, if we do the right things. And so many of my peers in tech are leading the charge. Grow SF is one of the political advocacy groups founded by tech leaders here at Rannapol recently showing 75% of residents support funding police and hiring more officers. 65% support doubling the size of SFPD. This flies in the face of the narratives that you heard about defund the police. Like that is dead. In San Francisco, the average San Franciscan is asking for more police and more public safety. The candidates for mayor, including incumbent London Breed and Levi Strauss heir Daniel Lurie, are competing to win the business community's endorsements. And the newest candidate is Mark Farrell. He's a venture capitalist. He's touting a tougher stance on crime and close ties to the business community. He likens the police uh, police chief to an underperforming portfolio company CEO as an example of how he might handle personnel. If we had a CEO that embodied those types of characteristics, whether he or she was a good person, that wouldn't matter. We would replace that person. It takes an outside lens to really come in back into City Hall and say, you know what, we're going to fix what's broken. Mike Moritz of Sequoia and Chris Larson of Ripple are two of the biggest spenders out here pouring over a million dollars each into San Francisco's ballot initiative, is Brian. Yeah, truly amazing because it sounds like based on your polls, people that Feelings have changed in the last couple of years. Let's put it that way, right? It sounds like the the shift has been enough is enough. That is the shift. And based on the polling, like you mentioned, Grow SF has that poll. It seems like the the political will has shifted towards it being tougher on crime, enforcing some of the existing laws that all of this might not reflect what's going on currently in the San Francisco administration. And you're seeing much more political advocacy sort of these grassroots campaigns by Mm -hmm. the tech leadership in a way that used to be sort of tech versus maybe San Francisco, you know, 10 years ago. It seems like their priorities are really aligned at this point. Kate Rooney out in San Francisco. Thank you, Kate. Thanks. All right. Staying in California, but moving east across I-80, parts of northern California, Nevada and Lake Tahoe are getting crushed with another winter storm. Some estimates say as much as 10 or maybe even 12 feet of snow could fall in parts of the area over the next day or two. It is making roads dangerous or in some cases impassable. 
Yosemite National Park closing through Sunday. A number of ski resorts in the area either closing or limiting operations over the weekend. In some cases, there is simply too much snow. Hard to believe. Lake Tahoe, obviously a major tourist destination, world-class skiing. And joining us now is Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Heavenly Ski Resort in Tahoe, Tom Fortune. Tom, um, thanks for joining us. I don't know how you got to work looking at some of the roads. It's not just the snow, is it? I saw on some mountain peaks 100 to 150 mile an hour wind gusts. Yeah, it's a lot of snow and a lot of high winds uh, with this storm for sure. And a good four by four truck with uh, studded tires around helped me get it around. Yeah, and explain to our audience. Listen, I just got back from Colorado. I, I love me some pow, as they might say, right? No friends at a powder day. But explain also how there can be too much snow. Snow is what you need for skiing, but there can be too much snow. There can be tree vents. There can be avalanches. It's dangerous. Yeah, you know, we get these big storms occasionally, and, you know, we don't we don't have to operate every day during these big storms. The snow will be here when the storm's over. And, you know, we kind of focus on that. We uh, we get open if we safely can, you know, whatever we can and uh, limited operation or no operation. The snow will be here when the weather clears and um, it'll set us up for for great conditions after the storm. It will. And we're showing some live shots and some video, the roads, some of the roads, they, they look they're open. People are people are coming in. What is your exact operating status right now, Tom? Yeah, Heavenly was able to get open today. We had a limited footprint on kind of the lower half, the lower portion of the mountain. The upper mountain was just too windy and stormy. So, yeah, we we were able to welcome a few guests here today. And, you know, we're focusing mostly on keeping things dug out and preparation for when the storm's over. And uh, a lot of people are going to be excited to come up here. Yeah, the last couple of years, I mean, I've been following you guys, haven't been able to make it out that far west. You guys have had a ton of snow. It's been unbelievable. Yeah, you know, last year was a record uh, at a lot of resorts in Tahoe, heavenly included. We had over 600 inches of snowfall last year. And, wow. you know, this is this is a multi-day storm and it's it's reminiscent of what we had last year for the whole course of the season. And, um, you know, we're we're thankful to have it. Um, we'll take the snow anytime we can get it. And if it means a little disruption along the way in our operation, you know, that's OK, too. But I do know that. Once you fully open, there's going to be a lot of very, very happy skiers and snowboarders in a lot of fresh powder, and you better go swap out some wider skis. Tom Fortune, really appreciate it. Thank you. Be well. Best to you and your team. Thank you very much. All right. On deck, just when you thought the weight loss drug craze couldn't get bigger, parts of Wall Street beg to differ. That's next. All right, welcome back. On this fine, fine network, we talk a lot about how weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Manjaro are disrupting the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, that is the topic of the new CNBC documentary coming up in just a couple of minutes right here. It's called Big Shot, the Ozempic Revolution. It's hosted by our friend Melissa Lee. It's awesome. Stay tuned for that. Meantime, today, an eye-popping new Bank of America price target for the drug maker Eli Lilly. B of A reiterated its buy rating, of course, and said that Lilly could soon break 1000 per share, mostly fueled by demand for its weight loss drugs, of course. Now, Lilly is the maker of Mount Jaro, as well as Zepbound. Shares of Lilly up nearly 4% today, up 34% year to date. But is this moat surrounding Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which is the maker of Ozempic, 
complete. Maybe just how much higher can the stock go? Let's bring in Curex CEO George Hampton on this. Curex Pharma is a patient-first pharmaceutical company distributing a range of branded and generic drugs. Uh, George, thanks for joining us. Uh, this, this, uh, they, they're called GLP-1s. That's probably what you call them. We'll just call them weight loss drugs. Man, this came out of nowhere. It's, it's, it went from zero to like a $100 billion business almost seemingly overnight. It, it probably feels that way. It, you know, for well, us, to us not you. you know? <laughs> no, it probably feels that way. For us in the, uh, in the weight loss business, this has been coming for a while. And um, we're, we're frankly happy we're there. We don't have a GLP-1. We have a different type of product for weight loss, but um, we're, we're happy both of those products are in the market now. What is your product and how is it different? Our product is called Contrave. It's a completely different uh, MOA, mode of action. It's an oral product. It works on the mesolimbic system in the brain. So it kind of, when people feel a reward from eating food, this kind of stops the reward in the brain from, from kind of cueing the next bite of food, um, where the, the GLP-1s obviously are glucagon-like peptides that work in the gut. So basically, it's, it's, a, it's a device, it's a drug that would, listen, great food, t- it's, a, it's a stimulant, right? And many, many people have, have, have an issue with that. And this kind of reduces that stimulation. Does it reduce? And I, some of the weight loss drugs, Tom, we found some people say, well, they help with other addictions, right? Smoking or drinking or gambling even. Uh, does, does your drug help reduce that, that dopamine or stimulus hit? On other That's things? exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, our we have a phase three ready product right now that we've completed a phase two on that um, that could go in for smoking cessation. That, that's exactly right. Wow. I, I mean, are these talk to us about potential side effects? All drugs have them, not just yours. And talk to us about how how big this market really is in a nation that and I don't use the term crisis that lightly is facing a crisis of obesity, even among Children, one that's didn't exist 30 years ago. Well, this this is what you what you hit on there is really what the problem is, right? We as a country, for the first time ever, have have ignored a chronic disease, obesity, and so it's kind of it's now become our number one uh, epidemic in the in the United States. And yes, there's side effects to every medication. Um, and as we use more and more of these medications, we'll learn more of these different side effects. But we have to keep in mind that the, the damage that obesity is doing to people's lives, to our economy, uh, is, is uh, far beyond the side effects at this point. What I, what I see happening here, you have to remember, there's, there's over 100 million people in the United States with obesity. And right now, only 5% of them are treated. So how big is this market? It's 95% untreated. Right. So can Lily stock go to a thousand? I'm not a stockbroker, but I know they have a great product and they have a great company and they have great leadership. Is, so, you know, it's 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 is there room for is there room for everybody on the drug side? Oh, for sure. I mean, we're not we're not this is these aren't paper clips and brake pads. Right. I mean, this is this is a highly complex disease that is you know, multifactorial. So, you know, GLP ones are not going to work for everyone. Our product, Contrave, is not going to work for everyone. We need more products actually in new classes to come to market. Just, just Brian, just like we did with hypertension or high blood pressure in the 90s and, and, and high cholesterol in the late 90s and type 2 diabetes in the early 2000s, you know, there are multiple different classes of medication to attack those diseases. And we've done a, a great job of affordably controlling those chronic diseases. You know, obesity, we're just getting started on. Do the food companies bear any responsibility? For the obesity crisis? Yeah. No, I mean... We'll, we'll let the food companies, you know, ask if they bear responsibility. 
That's it's not my business. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. It's just it's just every year, you know, you kind of see it grow, and and you wonder how did we end up here? But we're grateful. Well, for we com- we ended up here because we we failed to treat it in every other disease state, especially the chronic disease states. We as a country have intervened with medications and devices and services to slow the disease and improve yeah. the patient's yeah. disease journey. Um, you don't if you're if you're if you have high blood pressure, you don't wake up one morning two ten over. 150, you, you work your way there. And obesity is the same way. Uh, you know, not, not every patient is 40 plus BMI. We have people who are very early stage in their obesity. And if we intervene now yeah. with these medications, we can make a difference. I, no I, might, I, might, I might know somebody on the scale every morning that uh, that fits that latter description. You, you, I'm you not, and me both, friend. No you judgment. Th- thank you very much for coming on. Uh, good luck with the drugs. We need them. Thank you. Yep, we do. All right, it's Friday, folks. Let's end with the Sully side up. We all love dogs, right? Well, tonight, a tearful tribute that has touched many hearts. On Monday, an emotional John Stewart announced to his viewers of The Daily Show that his beloved dog, Dipper, had passed away. He was ready. He was tired. But I wasn't. In a world of good boys, he was the best. A little choked up there. Uh, Stewart adopted. It was a three-legged dog. Stewart adopted Dipper 12 years ago from a shelter called Animal Haven. And, and here's what makes it a sully side up. Donations to that shelter have flooded in. Great. Good. Rest in peace, Dipper. We'll see you Monday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.